now. Scotland's talking. Call 0333 2020 401 and join the debate. Hello, good morning. I'm Ali Bally. This is Scotland's talking. On the programme today is Donald Trump risking a return to a Cold War arms race with his threats to pull out of a 30-year-old treaty with the Russians. We're not going to let them violate a nuclear agreement and go out and do weapons, and we're not allowed to. What does it mean for the debate on nuclear weapons here in Scotland? Also, I'll be asking if you think the poppy appeal has a future after the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. The head of fundraising, Gordon Mickey, is going to be joining me in the studio. We don't have anyone who fought in that great conflict left, but we have so many second and third generations and the the legacy still touches us. And after 11 o'clock, the health secretary comes out fighting as a report from the spending watchdog says the NHS in Scotland is financially unsustainable. I don't believe that things are getting worse year on year and I don't believe that the majority of patients believe that either. Indeed, patient satisfaction levels are high in our health service. Is more money always the right medicine? And we'll meet a mother who says she's at breaking point caring for her disabled son because her council house can't be adapted for his needs. It's just all crumbling down on me now and I just don't know who to ask, where to go or what to do. Are you also being imprisoned by your own home? Plus on the programme, the Tory MSP who this week caused outrage after suggesting poor families shouldn't be allowed to have more than two children. Has she got a point? If you'd like to join us, 0333 this is Scotland's Talking. So, I think it's, uh, you know, a few subjects today that you just might want to comment on because uh, they're varied, We've got a varied packed programme for you today. So, if any time you feel you want to argue, you want to talk about it, you've got a comment you want to make about any of the subjects, then do get in touch. The phone lines are open, 0333 2020 401. You can text your comments to 61054. Start your message with Ali. Email ali at thegreatesthits.co.uk. And we're on Facebook, hashtag Scotland's Talking. We're starting off today with the Cold War with Russia. Well, some people already think we're in another Cold War with Russia. Are we now going to get the arms race to match? Donald Trump has caused alarm by threatening to pull America out of the INF Treaty. Now, This was a deal back in the late 1980s between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, It's banned intermediate-range nuclear missiles, like the cruise missiles, which sparked the Greenham Condom peace process. Mr Trump explained his thinking. Russia has violated the agreement. They've been violating it for many years, and I don't know why President Obama didn't negotiate or pull out. And we're not going to let them violate a nuclear agreement and go out and do weapons, and we're not allowed to. We're the ones that have stayed in the agreement, and we've honoured the agreement, but Russia has not, unfortunately, honoured the agreement. So we're going to terminate the agreement. We're going to pull out. So, is he serious, or is it just a classic Trump negotiating tactic? Unless Russia comes to us and China comes to us and they all come to us and they say, let's really get smart, and let's none of us develop those weapons. But if Russia's doing it, and if China's doing it, and we're adhering to the agreement, that's unacceptable. So are you concerned about this? Do you worry that we're going back to the bad old days of the Cold War? And what does that mean for the debate around nuclear weapons in Scotland? 
Professor Peter Jackson is an expert in global security at the University of Glasgow, and he joins us once again. Good to talk to you, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, and thanks for having me on this morning. Good. Now, what's your take on this? Is he just blowing hot air? No, I don't think he's, that President Trump is blowing hot air. I think that while I would never count myself an enthusiastic supporter of Trump or his administration, I do think they have a point that, in fact, this treaty is kind of moribund. It hasn't been an important kind of uh, rule rule setter for the the, the uh, you know the, the uh, state of nuclear weapons in the world for the last 15, 20 years. And so there is, I think, a good good argument to tear it up and start again, and this time include China, which particularly given its its uh, role in, in the you know in the Pacific, especially the uh, all, all along the kind of eastern front eastern borders of mm-hmm. of uh, of uh, uh, its its territory in the, the eastern seaboard has been uh, projecting its power in a way that has unsettled many of its neighbours. When we look at the the world that we are living in, and, and you know, when you just talk about China, there, I, I was looking at some of the you know right along that coastline that you're talking about. They, they really are building it up, and 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 we've got Russia who are are sending their agents to the streets of the UK to to allegedly. Uh, murder people. Um, we're not in a very safe place at the moment, Peter. No, I don't think so. I think that if you think about the combined effects of 9/11, then the um, the the financial crisis of 2008-2009, these have had very very destabilizing long-term effects on world politics. And I think we're living through some of the the after effects of those those two big shocks in terms of radicalizing both international relations and also domestic politics, and as a result, also ra- radicalizing relations between faiths, between races. Mm-hmm. It is a very unsettling moment in world politics. So, where, in your opinion, do you think we're going to be in ten years from now? Uh, I've given up making hard and fast predictions. <laughs> oh, come on, ago. you've <laughs> got a good crystal ball there. Well, I mean, it, I would argue that, in fact, this tactic by the Trump administration is typical of its negotiating behavior. It goes in making a very, very controversial statement to, to stir things up in the hopes of uh, putting its negotiating opponent on the back foot and acquiring uh, concessions that it would have taken much longer to get in you know long traditional patient diplomatic negotiations we saw this for example with mexico and then with canada over free trade we saw it with north korea where there was talk of fire and fury then followed by face to face meetings and almost what what some commentators have called a bromance between the north korean dictator and donald trump mm. so this is not an unusual negotiating tactic it's it's non conventional by the Trump administration, but I think the aim really is to bring both the Russians and the Chinese to the negotiating table, which, you know, as a as a you know an observer, a concerned observer of international politics, I I, I endorse. Right, it certainly is. You know, it's unusual for um, previous administrations. I don't think Obama would have taken this route to do it, but it's in a way. Being not an expert and sitting on the sidelines as I do, 
It's what you expect from Donald Trump, is it not? Well, I think so. This is, shouldn't surprise anyone, this, this present negotiating ploy. The worrying, one worrying factor for me is that uh, John Bolton, the national security advisor in the Trump administration, is uh, an uncompromising hawk who doesn't trust Russia and who I think will not be uh, a fan of uh, any kind of deal that the Russians and the Chinese are willing to contemplate. And so I see in the next few, well, I think probably the next year or two, tensions being ratcheted up both in the Pacific and in Europe. Because remember, these are missiles, these medium-range missiles, intermediate-range missiles that uh, were meant to be used over Europe. So I would say, once again, buckle up, because we're in for a rough ride in the short term. In the long term, I hope that, uh, that a deal is reached. The problem, I think, if I can just have a, a few more seconds, is, to, is that this is not an experienced team of negotiators, and I think they were duped in the case of North Korea. I don't think North Korea has any intention of uh, dismantling its nuclear program altogether. And I'm afraid that, you know, in order to gain uh, uh, points, especially in the midterm elections, uh, that the, the Trump administration will adopt a position w w which many of us, more experienced observers of international relations, might call naive in the end. Mm. Let's bring in uh, Arthur West, who's chair of Scottish CND. Arthur, good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us uh, in the conversation. Um, what's your view on this then? Well, I think it's a very uh, depressing uh, move, uh, Ali. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, I think, very dangerous and there's got potential to de destabilise uh, the situation in the world, which is already, uh, you know, sadly lacking in stability. Mm -hmm. um, really, um, you know, very, very worrying news. And, um, uh, you know, you, you just wonder where, where Trump's going is in some of these issues. Yeah, I think we, we all wonder that. Um, uh, even uh, I would suggest, uh, Peter Jackson, that uh, you indeed must listen to some of the comments that come from uh, the president and wonder where he's going with some of the comments he makes. No, I listen to them with despair. <laughs> I don't think this is the way to conduct international relations. The argument that the Trump administration is making is that the treaty is not working. And that's an argument which I think is difficult to refute. Now, their solution for trying to tear up the treaty and negotiate a new agreement is different. I don't, I don't, I don't think that this is necessarily the smartest way to do things. I think you begin talking before you make bold statements and statements that are, that are, that are likely to get your uh, negotiating counterparts back up. But that's not the Trump administration style. They go in first try and, and uh, put the opponent on the back foot and try then to get its exact concessions. What about, uh, Peter, the UK as it stands at the moment? Uh, are we able to cope with a problem that might arise in the, over the next couple of years? Are, are we in a position? I mean, our, our armed forces have um, run down in numbers. Uh, you know, are, are we really ready? Well, it depends on what you say ready for. I have not a fan of running down uh, Britain's conventional armed forces. But when it comes to a nuclear exchange, you know, frankly, I think I would agree with Mr. West, nobody's going to be ready for that. And with Faslane sitting right, <laughs> you know, a few miles up the coast, 
Uh, Scotland certainly will come out the worst in any uh, nuclear exchange. So we hope, obviously, that it doesn't come to that. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the other worrying aspect of this, Ali, is that uh, if they go ahead and develop these uh, intermediate-range missiles, uh, there's a chance that they could end up be, being based in Europe. They could be based in, in, in the UK, which which makes the situation, you know, even even less safe, you know. And um, when you've got people like you know Peter already, you know, indicated quite clearly that you know people like John Bolton, you know, who are driving uh, some of the foreign policy ideas. I mean, that's very worrying because this guy's got a reputation for being extremely hardline and uh, extremely hawkish on nuclear weapons issues and just, uh, you know, issues to do with, with uh, peace in the world generally. And what then, Arthur, do, do you see? I mean, we're talking, you know, Peter was talking about um, Baz Lane and, and what about the, the, the threats to Scotland? Where, did, where does uh, your organisation see that going? Well, in, in terms of the threats to Scotland, I mean, the, the last, you know, comprehensive security review that was done by the UK government, you know, indicated that... Uh, it was actually cyber, well, terrorism and, and cyber warfare were, were really the, the main security threats. And, you know, nuclear weapons, uh, you know, wouldn't do anything against these kind of threats. But, you know, we are, we are also um, quite despondent about, the, you know, the amount of money that gets spent when we've got problems in Scotland, you know, in relation to poverty and, you know, our health service where the money, the money could be better spent. But, there, there is actually, um, you know, it was interesting, you know, uh, what Peter was saying about trying to find a way forward. There actually is uh, <laughs> the development of, a, of another treaty, which doesn't get much coverage, but it's a treaty called the Global Ban uh, Treaty, which was uh, agreed by 122 countries uh, last July in a special session of the United Nations, July 2017, rather. And, and um, there's a process going on where countries are looking at this this, uh, this uh, treaty and um, you know and looking to ratify it. And Britain and the US uh, and unfortunately the other nuclear armed states have, have ignored uh, you know ignored the development of this treaty because what this treaty is about is develop you know you know moving towards uh, you know a de-escalation a move away from nuclear weapons and. You, you know, this is the kind of uh, initiative that should be supported because Peter's quite right. I mean, all all the actors, all the all the countries in the world need to to, to get involved in these discussions because if there is ever a nuclear weapons exchange, the the level of modern nuclear weapons is many more times that that was dropped to the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War. So, if there's any nuclear weapons exchange anywhere in the world, it'll have dramatic effects whether you're directly involved or not, you know, because radiation from these uh, very powerful uh, weapons it, it, it will, not, it will not abide by any national boundaries. So there's a, there's a real, um, you know, uh, global uh, dimension and global concern to this. Very much so. And, and um, Peter, the, the global ban that uh, um, Arthur's talking about there, why, why, are, why is the UK not um, acknowledging it? Any ideas? Well, I think probably the United, the United Kingdom feels, the Westminster government feels that possession of nuclear weapons gives it a role and a voice in world politics that it would not have otherwise, especially given all of the other difficulties the United Kingdom is experiencing trying to exit the United Kingdom. And and uh, it's a pretty difficult process, I think I would add. Uh, the, the idea that they would dismantle nuclear weapons unilaterally 
now doesn't make sense in terms of the logic that's existed in Westminster for the last six decades, that nuclear weapons are a means of the United Kingdom keeping its status as an important world power. One thing I suppose deserves mentioning is my, my judgment of the thinking in Washington is that they feel that the Soviet Union can't afford qualitative arms race. In other words, the, the, the United States is in a position to develop uh, newer, smarter, more powerful nuclear weapons that the Soviet Union just can't uh, afford because, of course, the memory was of the arms races of the 1980s, which most historians and commentators uh, argue were a reason why the Soviet Union fell because it couldn't afford to keep pace with the United Kingdom, United, sorry, with the United States and NATO countries, but the United States in particular, in in the kind of you know space age arms race. So this is probably in the background in terms of the logic of the Trump administration, this threat that saying, you know, we can outbuild you, we can build better, uh, smarter, more expensive weapons than you can afford. And in the long run, it's in your interest to come to the negotiating table. Speaking of, of Russia, I'm not sure that logic applies to China, however. Mm. Gentlemen, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I'm sure it's a subject we'll be returning to over the next few months. Arthur West, Chair of the Scottish CND, thank you. And also Professor Peter Jackson, an expert in global security at the University of Glasgow. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us this Sunday morning once again. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact, if you've got a, a comment you want to make, then give us a call 0333 2020 401. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Sarah's in Glasgow. Sarah, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning, then? I'm fine. Good, good. And uh, what prompted you to give us a call? Uh, because I'm a bit clueless. I wish Professor Jackson was still on. Oh, right. I just wanted to know, um, what what is the purpose? Why are these countries doing this? What do they want us to do or not do? You know, what is, you know, I mean, obviously they're holding a sort of gun to our head. So what is it they want us to do or not do? As far as America uh, and Russia and, and all these things are concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do they expect us to do? As far as the UK is concerned, is that what you mean? Well, or even America, what is it that, you know, that they're going to hold a nuclear weapon to America's head. What is it they want America to do or not do? I see. Right. Okay. Uh, well, Once they've I, done it. Yeah. Unfortunately, as as you say, uh, Professor Peter Jackson's now gone. But uh, let's let's see if we can get a little bit of more of an idea as to what you you the question you're asking for. Um, we have um, from the Conservative Party, uh, Andrew Bowie. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, we're talking about this then, and, and we've been talking about the uh, the situation with uh, Mr. Trump and causing alarm by threatening to pull America out of the INF Treaty. Sarah, yeah. as you've heard, there has just given us a call and said, "What is it they want? Do you do you get a grasp on what is it they want?" Well, I think uh, what we've got to remember here is put everything in perspective. Uh, as you said, uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, has only just threatened to withdraw the U.S. from the treaty. It would take six months for America to come out of the treaty. And uh, President Putin and President Trump are meeting in France next week, uh, sorry, next month to discuss all the issues regarding the INF Treaty. So he hasn't withdrawn yet. Um, I think it's also um, important to remember that problems with the treaty were actually raised first by President Obama in 2014. I mean, the INF Treaty has been a, a fantastic treaty. It's maintained, well, one of the reasons that peace has been maintained in the Western world for about three decades. 
But when President Obama and now President Trump raise concerns that Russia are flouting the treaty, then I think we've all got to take a step back and ask, is the treaty actually working? And I think that's what President Trump's doing right now. Right. Does that give you some explanation of it, Sarah? No, he never answered the question. Right, give us a question then. Go on. What is it they want? You know, why are they building these nuclear weapons? What are they going to threaten us with? Sorry, when you say they, do you mean the Americans or or the Russians or... uh, Sorry, I'm not... The Russians and and China. They're going to build these weapons, so what are they going to say to America? If you don't do this or do do this, we're going to uh, let off a nuclear weapon. What is it they're going to do? What do they want America to do? Well, what Russia are doing right now in in flouting the international rules-based system, which we've seen them do in the UK, in Salisbury, and and across the world, and what China's doing in the South China Sea by spreading its influence in 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 that uh, area of the world, is basically demonstrating to America and to the West that they are powerful players. And having these weapons is just another sort of part of their armament to demonstrate to the West that they are not to be messed with, that they are serious players that the age of American and Western dominance in the world is at an end. So, I mean, the threat of them using these missiles against countries in the West, I would say, is minimal. So I don't think we should lose too much sleep over it, but it's just a way of them flexing their muscle and telling America, look, the days of you having the say over everything that happens in the world are over. We are here and we are serious players. I think that's what Russia and China are doing um, right now. And... You know, Andrew, there we were talking also earlier about the threat to the UK, the threat mm. to, to, to Scotland. Um, mm. Are we in a fit state to react? Are, are we able with our, um, you know, we, we have uh, heard of the rundown and the, the armed forces. Uh, is, is that the right way to go? Should we be looking back to building them up again? Well, I mean, nobody's more uh, <laughs> aggrieved at the state of our conventional forces than I. I think that um, the numbers hovering around 80,000 is far too low for a conventional army to be at, likewise with the, the Navy and the RAF in their current state. But we do have, and let's be absolutely clear, one of the best equipped and best trained armed forces in the world. And being um, one of the few countries that contributes over 2% of its GDP to defence, um, being one of the few countries that is uh, part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization with France and Germany and Norway and all our other allies, I think that, yeah, we can rest assured that we would be safe from any attack from Russia. And as part of that alliance and as part of that defense, it is crucial that we maintain, and I heard um, the, 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 the person on from the CND earlier talk about Baslane and nuclear deterrent. It's crucial that we maintain our nuclear deterrent as a part of this wide array of uh, forces that we, that we deploy to keep us safe. Mm. But uh, you were talking about Arthur West, there, chair of the mm. Scottish yes, CND. Yeah, that's all right. Um, now, Arthur was making a point that comes up time and time again in in the money that could be saved in Scotland. You know, where we have poverty going on in quite a lot of the areas, we have um, needs within the health service, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Basically, are we spending too much money on this? Well, I, I, honestly, I don't think we are. I think it's it's absolutely crucial. The first duty of government is actually protection of the homeland. And as part of the protection of this country, I think it's crucial that we maintain an independent nuclear deterrent. And that's why we spend so much money on it. Regarding the health service, I, I don't want to go uh, along the lines of the budget, but we'll see this week a further £350 million a week being unveiled for the health service down south. That will have Barnet consequential effects, which means the Scottish government will have more money to spend on the health service up here. Yes, there are definite uh, issues regarding poverty that we must absolutely get a grip with. But I believe that the money that we invest in our independent nuclear deterrent is, is vital to keep us safe. 
and I would uh, urge any government to uh, look long and hard before it decided to uh, uh, cut back on any of that. And we are certainly not about to. And you would be um, encouraging you, your own government to look at the, the numbers in the armed forces then, from, from what I gather from what you're saying. Yes, I absolutely would. And I and uh, quite a few of my colleagues are quite depressed about the, 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 the scale of the, the drawdown in our conventional armed forces since the 2010 Strategic Defence Review. Um, back then, it was actually noted in that review that we would uh, face no more state-on-state -state, uh, problems uh, in, in the Western world. And of course, only a few years later, we saw Russia invade Ukraine and Crimea. So I think we have gone too far in the wrong direction. I would like to see an uplift in the numbers of our conventional troops. But you know, it's very hard. We've got a situation now with the highest level of employment in the UK since the 1970s. Youth unemployment is at a record low level, and, and we know that uh, recruitment to the armed forces um, is hit when the economy is doing well, which, which it is in the minute. So it's not just in terms of government direction, it's trying to encourage people to join up, because we do have a problem with recruitment as well. Great. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Scotland's Talk this you. morning. Thank you, Andrew Bowie, MP for West Aberdeenshire and Kincardine. 21 minutes away from 11. Also, thanks to Sarah in Glasgow for coming on as well. The number is 0333 202401. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. In two weeks' time, it'll be Remembrance Sunday and a very significant one. It'll coincide with Armistice Day and the precise moment 100 years ago when the First World War ended. This year's Scottish Poppy Appeal is underway and in this centenary year it's hoping to break the £3 million barrier for the first time. But what does the future hold for Remembrance Day and indeed poppies? There's no one still alive who fought in the Great War and now Second World War veterans are dying out. How long can it continue? Well, joining me this morning is Gordon Mickey, who's the head of fundraising at Poppy Scotland. So, as I say, it's all off and running. Good morning to you, Gordon. Good morning. Um, it's, it's, to get to a point like this where it is off and running, and, and um, I've been to the Poppy factory in Edinburgh. We broadcast two or three programmes from there, so I know the work that goes into it. But whilst the poppies are out in the streets now, there's a heck of a lot of work before that, isn't there? Yes, the beginning of November is the culmination of a lot of hard work behind the scenes by our fantastic disabled veterans in the Lady Hague's Poppy Factory who put together by hand all the 5 million poppies that we deliver out to our amazing army of nearly 10,000 volunteers across Scotland. Wow, 10,000 volunteers, that is absolutely amazing. Um, when they are out there volunteering and they're, they're collecting the money in, how important is this? You know, when we're asked to buy a poppy and put money in a tin or whatever, what's happening to it? It's so important that people do make a donation for one of our Scottish poppies. The money that is raised from the annual Scottish Poppy Appeal allows our welfare services team to ensure that we can support the armed forces community here in Scotland. And we currently estimate that there's in excess of 500,000 members of that armed forces community in Scotland. They may have all sorts of challenges and all sorts of support that they need. And Poppy Scotland is uh, 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 the first stop, first step in helping them uh, get the support that they need. Uh, and everyone's challenges are, are different. And again, it's it's because the you know the question we're asking here is: Is there a future for the poppies and for this appeal? I certainly believe there is a, a future for the work that we do. 
We have had so many conflicts since the end of the Great War, through the Second World War, through the Falkland Islands, Korea, the more recent conflicts that are maybe more resonate to younger members of the community. But what that means, and with the advances of medical science, people are last living longer. So the service that they gave in their, their teens and early 20s and 30s, they may be living into their 80s and 90s now, and we are will be there to support them when their needs and their challenges arrives, maybe 15, 20, 30, 40 years after that service. You know, you, you, you say that you, you're there to, um, to help and to support um, the, the men and women who, who need it, who are coming back from... Um, uh, war areas and have injuries even as they 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 get older then then they've got uh, problems that may arise but what's what type of things does our money go towards the money that we raise goes to a variety of projects that we work two that are probably the most visual uh, are our two welfare centers one in Inverness and one in Kilmarnock the Inverness center has just celebrated its fifth anniversary this year and we've supported nearly 5,000 members of the veterans community in the north. Kilmarnock has opened last year, and already we've supported 1,500 veterans within Kilmarnock. But we also partner with other uh, charities to ensure that we can provide uh, a, a service to the Armed Forces community. Our Armed Services Advice Project with Citizens Advice Scotland, where people can walk into a Citizen Advice Centre and say, I'm a member of the Armed Forces community, can you give me advice? And that advice could be from housing information, uh, information on benefits, uh, financial advice, whatever that person is facing and that challenge the person is facing, we can give an answer. If we can't give an answer, we can at least signpost to the relevant charity or government body that can provide that support. Mm. So whilst we may think the wars have gone at the moment and you know we're not getting people back injured etc there still is a need there isn't there? there i think there's always going to be a need i uh, and i think it it's it would be a challenge to say that the the wars are over conflict is still happening we have got british service men and women serving around the world and albeit it's not in uh, the papers on a daily basis what's happening around the world we have people brave people serving and they will come back and we support people that may not have been injured just in conflict but they may have a life-changing uh, ailment in the future the 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 matter of fact is that they served yeah i i think that uh, from previous programs that i've been involved with uh, regarding uh, Poppy Day and the appeal, etc., I, I was always amazed in talking to to different people uh, who have served and who uh, whom you've helped. How the public have helped by donating um, to all different types of things, whether it be uh, uh, needing uh, help around the home or indeed just um, getting, as you say, some citizens' advice or or even down to electric wheelchairs and things. Yeah. Like that. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? The the amount of help that you you can give. Uh, one of our listeners is John McCutcheon, and he's on the line. John, good morning. Good, good morning, Ali. It's a British poppy appeal. I mean, I was a soldier for 35 years. I was, when I was 18, and it was the Korean War, Kenya, Middle East, and the Falklands War. So a soldier is a person who gives his life, his life, 
And there's thousands of young soldiers who died for this country who don't give a damn about us. So if they have something, you know, this stupid two-minute silence once a year, they're lying in graves and they never had a life. So they deserve some people to realise that they fought for this country and if only for them fighting for this country and fighting and dying for this country, then this country would be in real trouble. And they're still fighting today, mm. Ali. Still yeah. fighting today in different countries in the Middle East for this country which don't give a damn about us. So a soldier is a person who's is a trained killer who will kill the other enemy. And that's the way you're trained to do. And and from all that then, let me just clarify here, John, you you are a supporter of the Poppy Appeal. Of course, Harry. It's going to recognise. So, I mean, there's people coming back with injuries, whatever, and totally dies by what they've seen in action. They come back different people. They're not the same people. My dad was in the war. They come back different people. They fought for the country, and the country didn't even know, they know them. So they deserve to be remembered forever. They're lining graves, which are unmarked graves. They fought bravely and heroically for the war, for this country. So we deserve to be remembered all the time, not just for not, two minutes. Not just right, just not just the, the, the ones, I think. But still, the fundraising appeal, um, I think, that we do at this time of the year is, is very important. Uh, Gordon, you've got a, a team that will be out there selling poppies. You would encourage our listeners um, to, to buy one and support the appeal. I would very much encourage them to go out and buy the poppy this year. And in particular, because it is the 100th anniversary of the signing of the armistice, we have changed the Scottish poppy. It's the first change in a generation. And on around 50% of the poppies you will find in every town, city and village across the country, you will see embossed in gold letterings, the letters 1918 to 2018. And that is our way to say thank you to those generations that have served and to commemorate this very important milestone in the history of our nation. Fabulous, Gordon. To you and your team and to all those who, who work behind the scenes as well, keep up the good work. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. So, coming up in the next hour then, is it time to think again about the future of the NHS? How long can it continue to hemorrhage money? Uh, and also, a Tory MSP this week caused outrage after suggesting poor families shouldn't be allowed to have more than two children. That Tory MP has six children. But has she got a point? Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Good to have your company. Next Sunday on the programme, we'll be joined in the first hour between 10 and 11 uh, by the... First Minister in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon. She'll take your calls from 10 through until 11 next Sunday morning. So if you've got a point or a question you'd like to put to her, uh, that's when she'll be here. Uh, is it time to think again about the future of the National Health Service? How long can it continue to hemorrhage money? A report by the spending watchdog Audit Scotland says it's not financially sustainable. There's more pressure on staff, waiting lists are getting longer, and with our population getting older, the demands are only going to become greater. Now, health boards across the country are facing a £130 million financial black hole. The Scottish Government says funding is at a record level, £13 billion this year, and the NHS has made unprecedented savings of nearly £450 million. 
Our political correspondent Alan Smith asked the Health Secretary Jane Freeman for her response. Well, I think what the Audit Scotland report is saying is it's pointing to the challenges that our healthcare system in Scotland and indeed across the UK and across Europe are facing. And that is a global challenge in terms of the financial viability of healthcare systems. And in pointing to that, it also recognises, in fairness, that our medium-term financial framework, which I published a few weeks ago, is an important first step in recognising what those challenges are, in setting out what we need to do to begin to address them, but also recognising that even with the reforms that it points to, and the reforms I pointed to uh, in terms of the waiting times plan that I published earlier in the week, that even with those reforms and that significant investment that we do make in our health service, there remains uh, a conversation to be had, if you like, about what we need to do to build a health service that is fit for uh, the people of Scotland's needs in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And that's one that we need to start having. Speaking to a number of your opponents today and their reactions to this report, they say year upon year the, the Audit Scotland report shows that things are actually getting worse year on year. I don't believe that things are getting worse year on year and I don't believe that the majority of patients receiving compassionate quality health care from uh, highly skilled and motivated staff in every part of our health service uh, believe that either. Indeed, patient satisfaction levels are high in our health service. But that's not me ignoring that there are challenges, there's performance that I need to make sure we improve on, and there are issues that need to be addressed in terms of recruiting and retaining our workforce. Um, I have been clear since the day I was appointed that all of that needs to be addressed, but I don't think that you helpfully focus on the challenges that we face and at the same time do down the good work that our staff are undertaking across the health service. Jane Freeman talking to Alan Smith and this is what the opposition parties had to say. Today's Audit Scotland report exposes the mismanagement of the NHS under the SNP. Too many staff under too much pressure. Too many patients waiting far too long. Too many health boards having to make swinging cuts. For a government which has been in charge now for more than 11 years, this is a real shameful report of their handling of our health service. But what's more concerning is actually what it now looks towards our Scottish NHS, the challenges it faces in the future, including a £130 million black hole. We see the government missing targets across the board, whether that's in waiting times, in terms of its own performance. In eight areas of performance, it's only met one national target, and no health board has managed to meet all of them across the board. So this is a woeful report card for the Scottish Government. The new Cabinet Secretary has her work cut out and will be on her heels every step of the way. So that was Labour's Richard Leonard, Alex Cole-Hamilton for the, the Lib Dems and the Tories' Miles Brigg. Jean Freeman talked about the need to have a conversation about the future of the NHS. So now's your chance. If you have a comment or indeed a thought on the NHS, um, then give us a call, 0333 202401. You can text 61054, start your message with Ali. Email ali at thegreatesthits.co.uk. And, of course, we're on Twitter, and the Twitter handle is Scotland, hashtag Scotland's Talking. So is just throwing more money at the service the answer? It's interesting that all those opposition parties come in with the criticism and, you know, this isn't good enough, etc., etc., which is, I suppose, what they're there to do. But where's their answers?
you know, what would they do? They were in power tomorrow. What would they do with the National Health Service in Scotland? Uh, let's go to Catherine. Hello, Catherine. How are you doing? Hey, good morning, Ali. Good morning. Your comment, please. Well, I think we don't really have a National Health Service here in Scotland. We've got what you would call a National Sickness Service um, because not enough has been done to... You know, not, not enough money has been spent on prevention of illness and disease and for those with long-term conditions to help them manage their condition. You know, we've, we've had lots of charities in recent weeks calling out for more specialist nurses. British Heart Foundation called out for that. So did Macmillan and some other charities as well. And... Um, and it's, it's great if you've got those charities shouting for you, but there's plenty of other illnesses and things that are, that are really, people that are really suffering. And I know of extremely long waiting times for treatment. I've had extremely long waits myself. And um, actually, I'm involved with a cross-party group on chronic pain. And um, one of the patients there um, was saying how she, t- she actually tried to commit suicide because she had been waiting um, you know, o- over 12 months for treatment, and she even and they went uh, th- and this detailed on her treatment plan that this is what the health bill promised her, and she never even got it, and mm-hmm. she ended up having to turn actually to private healthcare that cost her in the, in the region of three thousand pounds. It was three hundred pounds to see a consultant, and then over two thousand pounds for her treatment. Catherine. And, and, that, and, and it's shocking that people are having to do that. I understand what you're saying. You've, be, you've been on the programme before and yeah. I understand where, where you're coming from there. But, you know, given, given the, 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 the world we live in, we're getting older, taking all those reasons and, and you know, and I, I think, you know, waiting 12 months for treatment is appalling. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a pain clinic or whatever. We should not... We should not no, be waiting 12 months. But and I've waited 12 months myself for treatment, by the way. Really? <laughs> but, 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 uh-huh, yeah, my, my appointment was cancelled four times for the clinic. And when I got there and I asked them why, they used the, the, the excuse of the winter weather. Right. What, what would you do about it? If you were in charge, Catherine, what would you do? Well, the, 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 what, what Jean Freeman's saying about the national conversations, all well and good. But I already took part in that several years ago with Shona Robinson when she first came into power. So they've got all that information. We can't do it all again, do you know what I mean? Like, it feels as if I'm involved with a number of organisations to feed into these consultations and reports. And it's constantly, you know, just let's sit down and have a conversation, but there's no action. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're not, they're, they're not actually listening to the people who are telling them what to do. Polit- to politicians have... are great at setting up talking shops, aren't they? Let's, oh, let's sit down and have a talking shop and have some cups of coffee and we'll go away and do nothing. Uh-huh. And, right, you might, and, and, and if you're lucky, you might get a report sent to you and it's written up, but you never ever hear of any action that comes out of it. And that's what, we're, what, what, what people are just looking for, action to, and, and, and investment. Um, I mean, people with long-term conditions actually cost the NHS £7 in every 10 of, of, of NHS spending. And 2% of the most complex patients use up 50% of NHS funds. So these, this area must be targeted more. But when I go along to health board meetings, they don't speak about things like that. They're not actually looking. I mean, they, they were talking the other week there at the health board meeting about a £27 million black hole in their budget at a blink of an eye without any, you know, how they were really going to properly solve it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, 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 it's, it's really concerning that, that um, you know... <laughs> I think the whole thing needs to be reorganised. We've got a postcode lottery here in Scotland as well. If you live in a certain health board area, you'll get treatment for certain things that you won't in, in another in health board yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. And, and that has to be addressed as well because that is certainly unfair. 
Um, but the other thing that I, I, I suppose we need is proper proper investment in the staff. I don't think, um, you know, that, that, that a lot of staff are working, you know, very long hours and, and, and they're overstretched. And, and in fact, that was mentioned at the board meeting that a lot of the, the, the staff don't want to work full time anymore because the job is so stressful. They work yeah. part time. Yeah. And although we hear of this increase in numbers of staff, it's part time staff. So it's not the equivalent of having, you know, more, more, more people. So the, so the conditions need to be improved as well. All takes money, Catherine. All takes money. Thank you very much indeed. Joseph, good morning. Good morning, Ali. Your uh, point then. Another one telling us again, Ali, this is the National Health. We'll put millions and millions of pounds in it. Where's it all going, Ali? Where is it all going? Is it going to disappear down a big hole and not going to the right proper places in the National Health? I can't understand why they're pushing all this millions of pounds in. Nobody's come up and said, where, where, where is it going? And who's getting it? Mm. Well, it seems seems to be covering, as they keep talking about, and as Catherine did there, black holes. It seems to be, you know, um, I mean, the, the, the Scottish government came in and built, bailed out some of the health authorities recently um, that were in very deep financial problems. Yes, Ali, well, the, 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 the fifth one, the, the, the last uh, health thing, hurt constituents, the money it was lost through there and spent millions on computers and not taking out the, the, the national health budget. You know, it was for the hospitals and the patients, not for, not for, for computers. Yeah, but is is that not the job, though, of government as well? If, if, if the, you know, it is a health service, and if the health board have got into problems because of various reasons, could be, you know, it could be the, the, the flu, could be a, a big hit they've had in their hospitals, it might be buildings. That's what the government's there for, is it? No, it's not. Yeah, 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 they're, yeah. they're in to come and sort it out. Yes, Ali, but this is an area, and she said uh, 13 weeks was a thing. Every uh, time we heard 13 weeks, well, yes, 13 weeks. And now this new uh, health thing, Dorothy, uh, thing is saying there'll be 2021 before everything's all, all hunky-dory. Three years, Ali. Mm. Where did she come for that status? You think, you think, well, at least she's ad- admitting, and we did try and get Jean Freeman personal on the show today to, to answer some of your calls, but she was unavailable. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, she's tackling it, is she not? Aye, but she's trying she's try to convince us, Ali, and, and convincing sometimes doesn't go the right way. Don't, don't, don't convince us. Tell us the truth, what is really wrong with the national health. Well, I think it's a lack of money, but uh, as you say... How much can we keep pouring into it? Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, John, good morning. Good morning, Ali. How are you, my friend? Good, thank you. Good, good, good. So what's got you to give us a call today then? Oh, well, um, first of all, it appalls me, Ali, that we have got a government who would appear are openly saying, we want our young people to fight for our country, but when they come back, we're not going to look after them. You can dust it up, you can mess it about, you can say what you like. There, when they come back with the, the syndrome about fighting away, the government spent more money fighting, not to give them money than it did to give them money. So that's that's the country that we live in. Go and fight for our country, and when we come back, we'll forget about you. Leave you to lie, sleep under bridges. The, se- the second thing, Ali... Is that the, there was a politician on a conservative politician, and I think his quote was, "Well, we don't really need to worry about nuclear war because uh, we'll no lose sleep over our words to that effect, Ali." But the same government 
spent billions and billions of pounds to update the nuclear warhead, while our National Health Service is lying in disarray. Now, the words always said, where does the money come from to put into the National Health? I would like to go back to when the National Health was started, Ali, and the government of this country made a promise to the working class people. And what they said was, we will start national insurance. If you pay into that national insurance, we will look after you. They're not doing it, Ali. Mm -hmm. They're not looking after us. And to go even further, we're one of the few countries in the world that when you take ill and you go into a nursing home, they take your house off you. It is disgusting. It is appalling the way they treat the people who put, laid their life down for this country. And, and one final point before I got off my soapbox, Ali. The Conservative MP who said that women should, people should not be allowed to have wins after two, why not have it that they don't get benefit after the second kid? If they want to have a kid after that, then they don't get benefit. They're on their own way. Who are they? Who is a Conservative MP get the right to turn around and say, that working-class people shouldn't have the right to have more two kids. Right, well, just just in case, John, you know, that uh, some of our listeners have missed that story. I'm going to talk about that now. Thanks for your call. Uh, Tory MP this week, uh, as John was saying, uh, caused a bit of an outrage after suggesting poor families shouldn't be allowed to have more than two kids. Michelle Ballantyne, by the way, she's a mother of six, was taking part in a holiday debate about poverty and inequality. This is the moment she was quizzed about welfare changes and the two-child cap by the Scottish Government's Community Secretary, Aileen Campbell. I just wondered if the member says she was proud of welfare reforms. I wonder if she's proud of the two-child limit and whether she's proud of the rape clause. The two-child limit is about fairness. It is fair that people on benefit cannot have as many children as they like, while people who work and pay their way and don't claim benefits have to make decisions about the number of children they can have. Fairness is fairness to everybody, not to a one part of the community. Well, that sparked outrage, not only on social media, but across the Holyrood Chamber. The angriest response coming from SNP MSP Tom Arthur. I want to be the parliament where all of the powers are in this parliament, powers over employment law, so we can make sure there is a real living wage and under-25s aren't being paid the poverty national minimum wage. I want to have the full range of powers so we can truly transform Scotland. And I want the full powers... So we don't, have a, we don't live in a country where colleagues of Michelle Ballantyne get to dictate social security policy in this country. Because I have to say, in my two and a half years in this parliament, the contribution from Michelle Ballantyne was one of the most disgraceful speeches I have ever heard. Six minutes of pompous Victorian moralising that would have been better suited to the pages of a Dickens novel and to suggest that poverty should be a barrier to a family, that people who are poor are not entitled to any more than two children. What an absolutely disgraceful position and she should be utterly, utterly ashamed of herself. Tom Arthur getting a bit wound up there. Uh, the following day the issue was raised during First Minister's questions. Well, I think the uh, comments that were made by Michelle Ballantyne in this chamber yesterday were both appalling and also uh, ignorant of uh, the reality facing many families. 
Um, appalling because the idea that being poor should be a barrier to having a family uh, is Dickensian uh, and I think shows the Scottish Conservatives in their true colours. Uh, but the comments were also ignorant because, of course, the rape clause uh, will and won't just apply uh, when children are first born. From next year, it will apply to children of any age should their family circumstances change uh, so that they need to claim uh, benefits. To defend the rape clause misses the point that any of us can have our circumstances change at any time. And what Michelle Ballantyne seems to be suggesting is that if that happens to a family who perhaps had three children while they were all in work, uh, suddenly fall into different circumstances, uh, those children should be penalised as a result. It is absolutely shameful. The social security safety net is there for all of us should we need it. Uh, in times of uh, distress or, or times of changed circumstances and frankly shame uh, on the Conservatives that they are dismantling that social security safety net. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, the row has led to calls for Michelle Ballantyne to resign as the Scottish Tory welfare spokesperson. The party's stand-in leader Jackson Carlow has said Michelle herself has accepted that the rhetoric she used was clumsy and did not communicate either the sentiment or the substantive point she was trying to make. But the South Scotland MSP insists she's standing by her point that we all have to make decisions about the income we have and the number of children we can have accordingly. So, does she have a point? What do you think? Treble 3 2020 401 is the number. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Do you know what it's like to be imprisoned by your home? We're going to hear the story of Cher Roger. She's a mother who's at breaking point and begging the authorities to provide suitable accommodation for her severely disabled son. Caden is six years old and has cerebral palsy and she's been told her council house in Crosshouse near Kilmarnock cannot be medically adapted to suit. She's had to move his special bed into the living room because it's too much of a strain to carry him up the stairs and it's too dangerous for him to use a stairlift. Cher told us it's become a prison for Caden who is thriving at school but not at home. I just, I feel like getting up sometimes because I feel as if I'm failing him. I'm not giving him the environment to which he deserves. And listen, honey, any staff and everybody at York Hill and Chris, who's I'm so grateful that he survived because I honestly didn't think he would. And it cost them millions to save him. But now I feel as if I've been chucked out into society and nobody one says, well, you manage all right, well, you cope all right. You're just left to go on it, which is fair dues, because he's my son. And I hate admitting this, but I've got to admit now I can't do this on my own. If they gave me the appropriate accommodation with equipment, I could probably care for Caden for quite a while. Because the track and hoist systems take the way you just guide the child, but left in the main... 25 times, 26 times a day for the flare and changing his bum in a home where he's ready to be toilet trained but I need the proper bathroom and the track and hoist system to get him in to teach him how to use the toilet this isn't fair he's sat in a wheelchair all day so we're nappies it's no jokes, do you know what I mean? so it's just all 
crumbling down on me now and I just don't know <laughs> who to ask, where to go or what to do. Councillor Weed and East Ayrshire Council would do anything they could for me but their hands are tied and the answer that I keep getting is we can't give you what we don't have. Cher Roger who's calling on the government to set aside cash to build more houses for special needs children. So how unusual is her situation? You can hear the desperation in her voice there. She really wants to help young Caden. And she wants help for herself as well. But she's not getting it. Is this widespread across Scotland? Do you know someone in a similar situation? And, and what can be done about it? We, we, we talked there about, again, the health service, but here we are, social services and housing. They can't do anything because they can't give Cher and Caden what they don't have, which is another house that's going to be suitable for Caden. But still in this situation, just listening to what she's, you know, you could hear the desperation in Cher's, Cher's voice and, you know, just saying that Caden has to sit in a wheelchair all day. Uh, and isn't toilet trained. It's just, you know, I can understand, I think, how desperate Cher must feel. But as I say, is she on her own? Is this something that affects you maybe as well? Well, treble three, 2020, 401. And if anybody in East Ayrshire can help Cher and Caden, then please get in touch. Councillors, come on. There must be something, a little bit of, uh, effort by a few put together for get political parties get together and sort this out. O treble three twenty twenty four o one. Twenty two minutes away from twelve. Let's go to Eddie. Hi Eddie. Good morning to you. Morning, love. Morning. Um, perhaps you can maybe put me right, Ali. But a few years ago, um, there was a program on the TV about China, and they were only allowed to have two children. Right. Hello? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm listening to you. Um, that if that is still in place, I mean, I don't know. I'm nowhere up to it. But if she wants to do that over here, then surely she should go across the board. Everybody. Not just for those on benefit. Mm. I mean, I know it's wrong. But if that was to go through, it should go across the board. But what she, you know? what Michelle Ballantyne is saying is that if you... Is there a bit of common sense in what she's saying? If you cannot afford to have more than two children or indeed uh, going on to your fourth or whatever child, if you know that you can't afford it, then you, sh yeah. you shouldn't be doing it. Is that, not, is, is that not common sense, Eddie? Yes, it is. But, I mean, um, other countries have tried it and it seems to work for them. But it, it's not just for one couple, it's for everybody. And that should be, if she wants to go down that road, then it should be the same here. Everybody, no matter how big a wage you've got, it, if you put in that sort of um, comment for people who are on benefit, then why should they suffer? Okay, so a blanket ban for everybody, not just the poor. Okay, thanks for that. Um, here's 
on social media. Uh, are the government trying to turn Scotland into George Orwell's 1984, where we don't think for ourselves? We're told what to do and how to do it and where to do it. OK, thanks for that. Uh, Philip says, uh, re poor family, surely if you're struggling with kids you already have, it makes sense not to increase the financial burden by having more mouths to feed. If you can't afford to have an increasing family, don't have them. You shouldn't need to rely on the benefit system as a cash cow or a crutch. Go out and earn your living and support your kids by the sweat of your brow. The MSP who's been criticised has indeed a large family, but she is supporting it by her own means and not relying on the state. Philip, thank you. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Let's say good morning to Kenny Smith. Kenny, how are you? I'm not too bad, Ali. Your point today then, please. Um, it's just regarding the point that the MSP was getting uh, a lot of grief about regarding the two-children ch- two uh, policy for benefits. Now, if you're unable to support your own kids, why should anybody else have to support them for you? Hmm. Now, that, my point kind of links into the, the young woman fresher that's uh, having trouble with housing. If you've got a never worked in your life, now there's generations of families throughout Glasgow and all over Scotland that their career has been claiming benefits and it's passed through generation to generation where they just have child after child after child. Now, not only does that affect the taxpayer that's got to pay for the benefits to support these kids, it comes a point when the house is too small for them. So the council's then either got to rehouse them or, in some cases, redevelop that house in order to make it bigger so that they can fit all their kids in. Bearing in mind that they've never paid anything back into the state to get this. And then it then has a knock-on effect when housing is unavailable for other people, such as a young woman in Ayrshire that can't get a house big enough to be able to convert it for a kid that's not well. So it's, it's not just a case of saying that people shouldn't be allowed to have more than two kids if they're not in benefits. You've got to look at the bigger picture of how it's going to affect not just them, but society as a whole. Right, right. So, But again, surely it comes to another side of it as well, Kenny, is that, you know, the the, the housing needs that Caden and his mum has, um, they can't really get that house because authorities are not building houses for, for children with, with needs like that. This is true, but... How- I mean, I don't know, so I'm speculating here. There could potentially have been a house out there that could have been suitable that may have had to have been converted for a family that has never worked a day in its life but has potentially, say, six kids. This is the point I'm making. It's not just a case of saying, oh, yeah, you can't have more than two kids. You can't have more than... could. It should be a case you can't have more than two kids if you can't afford to feed them and somebody else has got to do it. Mm -hmm. And if you keep having more kids and then we need to then build or augment housing for you and your, your kids, then that's not fair in other people, as it's now becoming apparent to uh, local councils. So you, as far as you're concerned, the MSP, Michelle Ballantyne, has a point? Oh, yes, she's got a valid point. And uh, the SNP um, MP who was going off his head, um, he's delusional. I mean, if he's quite happy for everybody to just get everything for nothing in life, then fantastic, you can throw some of his wages my way. I'll quite happily take them. Kenny, thank you very much. Let's go to Michelle next. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Ali. Thanks for calling um, in. What's your point then? Well, the thing about the two 
Uh, well, the, the Michelle Valentine, she's got how many kids? Six? Yep. And I'm sure she still gets um, our child benefit. So what does she do with that? And I, I do understand. I've got two kids. I've got one at 29 and I've got one at 11. Big gap between the two of them. But I work full time. And what does she do with housing benefit, our child benefit that she gets for her six kids, considering the amount of wages she gets? Surely she must donate that to charity or what? Why, why should she donate it to charity? Do you donate, no, was, do you donate your money to charity? No, because I don't earn the same amount of money as her. I'm a single mum. Well, you can, you, can stand, you can stand up and be an MSP. You can go and try and be an MSP and earn the same money. Well, that's something I might look at, Ali. Absolutely. Nothing to stop um, you. But it's just... like you get these, And I understand this. I know that um, now, if you've got two children that are just born, um, you only get like, the grant for one child. And the secondary child, you don't get that grant if you get two kids. So someone with six is only getting it for one then, is that what you're saying? Yep. No, you get it for one. You get the maternity grant for one. Right. And you get like the money, and it's like five hundred pounds or something. Is it really? Um to get a pram and a cot and whatever else. But see if you have a secondary kid then you don't get that money. Well, that's fair enough. You should, already, you should already have the pram in the court, shouldn't you? Well, definitely. That's exactly. Listen, I'm the same as Kenny. I pay my taxes. I work full-time, and I don't know I'm empty to take care of Marine. But the time being, there, there is people milking it. I've been doing um, to my son's nursery before I got him in there, and I couldn't get him in because I wasn't a drug addict. Or I was with social work. And then you see people coming up with five ways and you're going, really? I stay in the country, I've paid my taxes and I can't get my son into nursery because I'm known like uh, at risk register and I'm known by a social worker. All we try to do is work full time and I couldn't get a placement for my son. Michelle, we're running out of time, but thank you very much indeed for your for your call. Uh, this morning. We've uh, had quite a few uh, comments on social media and Saul joins us. Good morning. For the last time. We'll talk about that in a second. Anyway. Don't, oh, you'll get me going. <laughs> what do you got then on social media? I've got one in from Craig. We've been speaking about the poppy appeal. No disrespect to those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, but would wearing a white rose to signify love, which he says was popular before red, the, the colour red, mm-hmm. not be more relevant and important with the planet's impending heat death? I see. Right. Okay. Uh, here's one that says, in the next few years, a lot more machines will be doing people's jobs means more unemployment, so they'll need benefits. That's from Archie. Um, Liz says, man's inhumanity towards his fellow man is bringing the species to its knees. All the chaos and instability across the world is merely symptomatic of this fact. For things to change, we must halt this moral degeneration and bring back compassion and caring for each other before it's too late. Compassion and caring for each other. Don't get a lot of that on this show. Um, (laughs) Here's one that says, when the NHS, and I find this quite extraordinary, 
when the NHS stops paying contractors £70 for every light bulb change and £20 for every sanitising soap dispensers being filled, some hospital trusts, you know, would have paid over £3 million to have soap dispensers filled. Wow. Now, don't believe that, do you? No. No. I, I mean, no this way. person doesn't give me their name, but um, I would, you know, I'd query that. And I'm sure if I was if I was the health secretary, yes, there would be some changes, but... Um, definitely. definitely. That's a lot of money. And uh, they wouldn't be getting contractors in to fill the soap dispensers. There again, who would fill the soap dispensers? That's all thing. But, you know, there is a situation there that um, you've got to say to yourself, really... Is all the money going to the right places? That's all mistake. You got any more, or is that no. it? I thought that I was That's just it. I was just clearing. There was one regarding. Um, let's see if I can find it on the the Ali Bali. Um, uh, what do you call it? Facebook. Facebook. Thank you. <laughs> we'll get you there, Ali. Oh, in the end, we'll get you there. Losing the plot here. Uh, it's easy. Um, yes, if we if we go to to war. We needn't worry about the troops and everything because we'll just be all blown up anyway. That's a good thought. Thanks very much indeed for that. Um, that come from Mary. Yeah, Mary said, if there's a nuclear war, it won't matter how many troops we have as we'll be obliterated. Well, well, let's try and do something before that, you know, and look after what we've got at the moment. So that's it, almost for Scotland's Talking for today. And uh, that's it for Seoul. You're, leave, you're leaving us. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This morning is my last talking. Oh, good, good. So it'll be okay from next week. Um, we've held the first minister back so that she didn't have to put up with Saul. Um, so she's on the program next week, but you won't be here. So if, if I'll be you, listening at home, you'll be listening. At I'll home. be listening That's at very home. Very good of you. Yeah, I'm going to actually just you know there are many um, well-known journalists now who have been. I've been doing this show for over thirty years, right? and that have been associated with this show. I'm going to read out some names to you. James okay. Cook, who's now BBC's American correspondent, from Forford, like yourself. Yes. Forford Academy. Eddie Mayer, Bill Whitefoot, uh, BBC. Martha Fairley, who's ITN in London. Uh, Dave Cowan, BBC. Amanda Mazzullo, BBC. And you know, the First Minister, mm -hmm. when she was at school, was answering the phones on one of our sports phone-in programmes. Really? That's how she started. So the next name I tell you to watch out for is Saul Sivright, because he's off oh. to start his media career with STV, and we wish you all the very, very best. Thank you, Ali. I'd like to thank you as well for looking after me for 18 months. I know. <laughs> it's felt like a babysitter. <laughs>